Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience beyond the future of our planet. For this episode, I am so excited to welcome Richard Thrillfall, partner and global head of infrastructure, government, healthcare and transport at KPMG, the chair of International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure, fellow and former vice president of the Institution of Civil Engineers, and many other titles. Richard is an absolute thought leader in the world of infrastructure and the role that climate change has to play in the world that we live in. I came across Richard a few years ago through his regular posts on LinkedIn around the climate clock. And he has quite a unique perspective of the sector, both with visibility of what is happening across many of the major asset owners and financial institutions, but also as someone who's deeply passionate about the change that is required to tackle climate change. This episode has been a long time coming and I'm so happy to welcome Richard. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now let's pass over to Richard. I'm Richard Threlfall, 52 years old, uh, been passionate about infrastructure uh, and the role of public services more generally uh, for all of my career passionate about the role that they have in defining our lives and the future quality of life for generations to come. I think the first point where I came across you and your work was was quite a while ago now, and it was through your regular postings on LinkedIn related to the climate clock. And these are weekly postings where you share your thoughts on almost like a bit of a state of the nation related to the climate clock and climate change in general. And I personally found them absolutely fascinating. And that's why I originally reached out to you and I have been learning from your posts ever since. But for those listening and watching that maybe aren't as familiar with the concept of the climate clock, would you mind maybe just starting there and, and taking us through what it is and the role that it plays in our everyday lives? Sure. So I'm hugely motivated around trying to action on climate change and drive down our carbon emissions. I, I just think it's it's um, existentially important and it worries me that a lot of business and political leaders don't really seem to have understood just how serious this is. And I guess my way of trying to draw attention to the urgency is to draw on that carbon clock, uh, which basically says at the current rate of carbon emissions how long will it take before we cross that threshold of 1.5 degrees of warming of the planet above pre-industrial levels? And as of today, we're down to five years, nine months and 19 days before we reach that point. And that's really close, isn't it? It's a lot It's a lot sooner than most infrastructure projects that we conceive of today will ever get built. And then people say to me, but one and a half degrees, what, what's the significance of that? Doesn't sound very much, does it? But the real significance of one and a half degrees is that I think humanity starts to lose control as we go over that threshold. We we think we were super bright and we can solve everything, but we start to breach planetary tipping points, which means it just might not be possible to go the other way. And then we're spiralling into a future that none of us would want to bequeath our children. So that's why I'm so determined to try to get everyone to realise that there's an absolute urgency around acting on climate change. Having the climate clock currently in within the five-year period, I think it, it can then trigger quite a shocking realisation when you then 
consider the net zero targets that a lot of large and governments have around the world. We've seen net zero targets pushed to 2035, 2040, 2050, et cetera. But then if we know that the climate clock, which is a theoretical idea, but it's very much backed by science. If we know that the climate clock is within the five year range, then we've got targets in the 2040, 2050 range. Something's not right. There's an issue there. And it's also been really depressing over the last few months, the last half of this year, to see the way in which as, as the world comes under financial pressure, the political will to be able to stick to and really drive things like net zero targets starts to dissipate. And I guess that holds two truths in, in, in that. One is that we're all a bit selfish, sadly, and we are much more concerned as humanity about the immediate pressures on us today than the potentially catastrophic ramifications for future generations. And it also holds a truth that we are we're stuck in this socioeconomic construct where nearly all decisions, political, business, and even personal decisions are run by financial trade-offs and financial equations. And then before we all get really depressed, actually, there is where the hope lies, because we are seeing these, we are seeing various parts of the things that we need to do in order to decarbonize our economy tipping into being financially advantageous too and that's changing behavior and we're seeing that most immediately in the whole area around renewable energy where it's already the case and we're already now widely recognized that it is a cheaper long-run option to build renewable energy now than it is to continue to build extractive energy based on extractive energy sources there was a recent piece that was published by a team at princeton university that said that the financial payback period on renewables is only five and a half years, which coincidentally is about how much time you've got left before we go over 1.5 degrees. And one of your recent posts along those lines and, and going back to the point around incentives, I, I found really interesting. And if I just read it out for a second, but our evolutionary wiring means that we will change behavior when we benefit personally, which tends today to be measured in terms of net financial gain. So our best for action on climate change is when the financial case is overwhelming. And that time is now, according to research by Mark Jacobson and the team at Stanford University. And that point coupled with the financial payback being five and a half years. Five and a half years is your average capital project, capital infrastructure project. Five and a half years is nothing in the grand scheme of things. That, that point around the financial case, the financial incentives, from your conversations and your visibility of the infrastructure market and, and large asset owners and a lot of the financial players, is that financial case, the point you now lead on, is that getting through to people? I think you're wrongly, it's almost the only way of getting through to people, certainly in a business conversation. I've had conversations with fund managers who put equity or debt into major infrastructure projects all over the world. I've had those conversations within the last year where individuals have said, at a personal level, I really get that we need to shift our portfolio immediately to all things that are ESG compliant and in particular driven data decarb. But we have a fiduciary duty to return the maximum return we can to our shareholders. And 
uh, I think there's a, a technical misunderstanding there about the responsibility to to shareholders. But leaving that as that that is the world we live in. And interestingly, it was it was echoed in a, an article published just this month uh, in the Royal Society of Arts journal, where uh, Christiana Figueras, who of course is the architect of the uh, 2015 Paris Agreement, is is being interviewed, uh, and she also alludes to the fact that we've got to this point where capital is flowing into renewable energy because it is seen as offering the best economic return. And then she reflects on the fact we haven't reached that point with nature. We haven't reached that point. So whether it's rewilding or whether it's protecting species from extinction. And she says, look, it's not a popular view, perhaps amongst the NGO community and those of us that are driven by passion before money. But actually, we have to get to a position where we put monetary value on all the things that we need to value in the world, because if we don't do that, we'll just continue to fail to make the actions that we need to take. And I I think this is a really important point, uh, one that actually came up in last week's podcast with Jonathan Monkley, who has co-founded a a community called Zero, a a global community bringing together those working on decarbonisation. And we, we spoke around the points that really up until recently, the idea of going towards net zero, the idea of sustainability has depended on a morality point. It's dependent on people's goodwill and their passion for the environment and their passion for the outside, et cetera, and coupled into corporate CSR type initiatives rather than actually coming down to hard numbers, which is now that we're coming through that, we're going through that journey now, but attaching hard numbers to the change and the value that this can generate, such as that five and a half year payback period. I think that the tides will turn. What, what do you think about that? So I, I agree. And this is actually the fundamental of, of where we are going and where we need to go as fast as possible in the business world. Uh, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development has put its finger on this over the last few years. They call it redefining value. And it's around making sure that what we measure as businesses covers all of the environmental, social and governance factors, as well as the the pure financial profit and loss. I work for KPMG. It's probably best known still for being a major accounting firm all over the world, even though I'm personally not an accountant, I just work on the advisory side. But we can see through the accounting side of our business and the audit side of our business, how we are moving rapidly to a world in which when companies report today, they produce a financial report and accounts. And the only stuff that is measured is the stuff that's easy to measure, if you like, the pure cash flow. But we're rapidly moving to a point where businesses will be required by law to start to quantify and report on things like their carbon emissions. And in due course, it'll extend things like nature and diversity and so on. Some of these are very difficult things to measure, but we will get to that point. And I believe that will be hugely powerful because the problem today is that even if let's say you or anyone listening to this conversation is really motivated to do the right thing, let's say it's around buying a particular product. Do you really know which product is the greenest? Do you know really know which product is the most recyclable even? It's almost impossible to know. And once we get to a point where companies are required to have this full disclosure there'll then be a comparison or whether it's your decision who you choose to go and work for 
or whether you are a provider of private capital and it's about your decision where you invest, suddenly all of those decisions will be capable of being rationally driven by a broader perspective of the impact of those businesses, not just a narrow one about how much money they make. And I think that's a really important point. And it's one that we are increasingly seeing in our everyday lives in that there is, there's much more organic growth within the change that, that, it, that is needed, much more organic passion for decarbonization, sustainability initiatives, et cetera. And it's that I think it's interesting to see that the different geographic approaches to that, for example, in the U S with their inflation reduction act, very much given people the, the carrot of all of this U.S. grant money to incentivize and to try and unlock some organic growth, whereas in other areas of the world, maybe take a more of a policy-driven approach. I, I want to ask you about the, the Inflation Reduction Act that we see in the U.S. because we're, we're about one year into that so far. So far, over the 12-month period, we've seen $278 billion announced in new private clean energy investments. We've seen 170,000 new jobs come from projects funded through the Inflation Reduction Act. And Goldman Sachs has estimated that within the next decade, it will see circa $1 trillion in public investment from the US government. It's being held up on the global stage as this big winning scheme. And is it something that the Europe, UK, other parts of the world should be envious about? So it has been extraordinarily successful. I and mean, you've given the, the very big headline numbers of the way in which it has drawn investment into US green growth. And we've seen that as a business, as KPMG, we've been, and as individuals working within the project space, we have seen the uptick in deal flow. And we've also seen the flight of capital moving, particularly out of the UK towards the US, but also being drawn into Europe, because of course, Europe is also driving big subsidy programmes to drive green economy. I think, again, there's a broader lesson out there, which is the way that politicians everywhere find a, a way of driving support for green policies is about making them green growth policies. <laughs> and maybe we come on to a side conversation later about the uh, the fact that you can't have growth forever. But but let's just stick with the moment that for, for trying to deal with what we need to deal with on decarbonisation, it's actually being hugely successful. I think the UK in particular is, is in a difficult position because, as I say, the, the capital is going on the one hand into Europe, on the other hand into US. And we've seen various reports and surveys of the investment attractiveness of the UK, where the UK has dropped from being highly attractive to investors to almost the least attractive. And this is one of the big factors behind that. It's not the only factor, but it's one of the big factors behind that. There is an inevitability of having to respond. If you can detect a slight hesitancy in me coming to that conclusion, um, it's because it feels uncomfortable that instead of the collaboration that the world needs, and instead of recognising that actually supporting particularly developing markets is a key thing and we need a transfer of wealth from developed countries to developing countries, actually what we're seeing is an acceleration towards localism and the big economic blocks of the world buying up the capital of the world, if you like, buying up the attractiveness of the capital of the world. And that really just makes it harder for everyone else. And it makes us continue to think of this as a competitive issue 
whereas actually we are facing a shared existential challenge around the world and we ought to be doing much more together rather than individually. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think we do see examples of vertical driven growth in certain areas, such as say hydrogen. A lot of folks come in together around the world to develop hydrogen as a feasible fuel that we can easily transport around. And hydrogen fuels and sort of clean or low carbon fuels being announced as the, the two, the tricky industrial sectors that are considered hard to abate. So hard to decarbonize. What is your perspective on the hard to abate sectors and how do we tackle that? Two completely different parts to an answer to this question. The, the first one is um, we will solve the vast majority of this problem with existing technology pointed with existing deal flow, existing commercial techniques. It, it's not, I, I really worry when there's a sense of, oh, we need to wait 10 or 20 years until this technology is in place or this technology is invented or this technology is viable before we can solve, because that's just not true. And hard, the shipping and the aviation sectors, for example, which are two of the classic hard to abate, between them re represent less than about 4% of global carbon emissions. So there's part of the answer which says, let's not allow a fixation around the difficult to stop us getting on really fast with the stuff that's actually quite easy that will fix a big part of the problem. But when we do come to hard for weight sectors, and specifically you've talked about hydrogen, I believe in the long run, it is a hugely important part of the answer. Um, and it's not just because I think hydrogen is at the moment probably the best answer to heavy trucks and uh, shipping. Um, but it's also that hydrogen is the answer to storage of renewable energies to overcome intermittency and renewable energies. And it's also the role of hydrogen in terms of fertilizers and so on. So I think will be a breakthrough, become a fundamental commodity of the world, because it sits under so many different parts of the decarbonized future that we're looking towards. But there's no point getting super excited about it today. Because even the most indiv optimistic individuals out there will accept that we're probably 15 or 20 years away from the point at which we are able to produce enough green hydrogen in quantity for it to be able to play that role and put in place all of the structure of the supply chains we need in order for it to be distributed and used effectively. Really interested in that timeline that you mentioned. I know that one of the, one of the big challenges with hydrogen is, is safe storage and transport it's quite expensive to transport it around. And we have seen large hydrogen transport pipelines being introduced into the UK, but really interested if you wouldn't mind just breaking down that 10 to 15 year estimate, what are some of the big challenges that you see us needing to overcome for that, to make it a reality? The biggest one is just the production. You can, as we know, you can create hydrogen from, in all sorts of ways, brown hydrogen from burning coal and blue hydrogen from, if you can get it to scale, being able to create biological ways of creating it. But the only way in the long run, I passionately believe that we're going to make this work is green hydrogen and green hydrogen has to be produced by renewable energy and it requires whacking amounts of energy in order to create hydrogen. In simple terms, you need to reach a position in the world where we have a surplus of hydrogen beyond that which we need for direct electricity needs in order to then put it into the storage and the conversion into hydrogen. And that's the biggest single issue. The, the, the ramp up speeds that we've got 
to create enough renewable energy around the world are just constrained for all sorts of reasons that we know and love. And then on top of that, you've got issues like, as you say, safe supply lines, safe storage, industrial working practices and so on. I had an interesting conversation with my 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 father about the idea of hydrogen being used as a substitute for gas and in home heating environments, for example, or being used for domestic transport for individual personal use cars. My father is a research chemist and, and he immediately said it's a volatile industrial product. He could only ever see it being safely used within environments where you could imply, apply industrial safety techniques to it. And so, again, we've just we've got to cut through some of the hype about how it might be used and think realistically about the wide scale industrial applications and the way that it will be applied in that space. And we did see the unfortunate scrapping of Cadence Hydrogen Village trial in there in Whitby months ago because of pushback from local residents on a number of different areas, but one being the perception around safety. So there, there are still some key hurdles that we need to cross for, for sure. On the point around renewable energy and thinking about other types of renewable energy, over the last few months, we've seen a lot of press around offshore wind auctions receiving no bids from the private sector. We, there is a wake-up call that we need to shake up the sector. What do you think some of the challenges that we're experiencing are? This has been most unfortunate, not just unfortunate, of course, because there's this hiatus in terms of the money flowing into UK offshore. Uh, but it's also most unfortunate because it, to me, it was one of the flagship success stories of UK government and regulatory policy creating the conditions where an industry that had been basically inaccessible to private money because it was seen as too risky had moved to a position where it was almost entirely a privately supported industry and, and it upset, upset that apple cart of success. And it's, again, what's the underlying issue here? I mean, the underlying issue is not structural things to do with that industry, in my view. The underlying issue is how do you get a trusted conversation between policymakers and, and a government on the one hand and an industry and its supply chain on another. I think too often government officials tend to distrust private sector investors who think they're, of course, just out for it for themselves. And on the other hand, the private sector, I think, often doesn't recognise how they need to interact with government in order to really land what they need to land in order to get those points across. I've seen this also, for example, in conversations around electric and autonomous vehicles and the dialogue that's needed between manufacturers of electric vehicles and governments around the physical infrastructure and regulatory requirements to, to allow those systems to operate. And so I'm hoping that what's going to happen now, given that shock over UK offshore wind, is the industry and the government's going to find a way to get together again and just talk seriously about the partnership that's required in order to get that restarted for government to accept that the conditions have changed, the supply chain uh, conditions have changed, the costs in the industry have changed and adjust uh, effectively the subsidy uh, environment in a way that then enables the programme to restart. And the mention of electric vehicles is quite an important one because we've seen a huge amount of growth in electric vehicles over the last decade or so. In all parts of the world, we've seen uh, significant investment from Tesla in, in charging infrastructure here in the UK. We've seen them open up 
their charging infrastructure to non-Tesla vehicles, which is exciting for all. But there's still quite a catch-up needed in the infrastructure. We're somewhat dependent still on the private sector to make those investments, which is then dependent on the right incentives and economic drivers being in place. But it seems that if the, if we as a whole are dependent on society moving towards electric vehicles, a little bit of a catch-up needed. And I'd imagine policy plays a key role in that, right? Policy in this space is absolutely fundamental and it's a great example. We've seen tremendous progress. We've got to a position now where you'd be hard pressed to name any automotive manufacturer anywhere in the world who isn't either already producing pure electric vehicles or is going to be producing them within the next year. So almost the entire industry has already changed. The ranges are going up really significantly. We've uh, lucky to have a Tesla and the range on that is more than 350 miles, which from the middle of the country where I live gets me to, to both coasts and back without having to recharge it. And that in turn takes some of the pressure off the on-road charging infrastructure. But your central point is absolutely right. There's been a failure. We're talking about the UK here. It's not the same in some other countries which have seen the importance of the charging earlier. But there's been this failure of government to recognise that charging infrastructure is an essential network asset in the future. And allowing it to be some commercial free-for-all is a nonsense. It cannot get you to the position to be in, which is the equivalent position to that which we've got with, with ICE vehicles, where any vehicle can go onto any forecourt and be charged and be off in five minutes. And, and it, all the time that we're a mile away from that or its equivalent with origin and destination charging, then I think we're really going to struggle. And so I think there needs to be a fundamental rethink about the way in which the charging infrastructure market is being run. I guess whilst we're on the topic of policy enabling the energy transition, buildings in the UK is, is quite a prominent theme amongst a lot of the, the decarbonizing conversation. We had John Monkley, as mentioned last week, mention the, the build quality in the UK and, and how we, we have just generally quite leaky houses. Do you see that as an issue from where you're sitting? Uh, for sure, it's an issue. And Actually, it's probably the most intractable issue, not just in the UK, but in any environment where you've got a lot of very old housing stock and obviously a huge amount of that housing stock in private hands where the levers that government might wish to exercise have to effectively incentivise action by hundreds and thousands and millions of individual homeowners. So it's exceedingly difficult. I We've seen waves and waves of programmes over decades attempting to incentivise home insulation and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, I think the answer here lies more in terms of ensuring that the supply of whatever it is that goes into a home is renewable, rather than trying to deal with the actual fabric of the buildings where they're part of the existing built environment, because I just think that will be far too slow to reach an answer quick enough. And then the other thing, which is the lower hanging fruit, but somehow we still seem to be failing to grasp it, is driving the building standards for what we are building new so that they are properly anticipating the the standards we will need in the future. So setting a higher bar than where we are today, because it's, it's ridiculous that we are still permitting new buildings to be created, which don't meet the absolutely highest standards of energy efficiency and renewable energy supply into them. 
Buildings is quite an interesting example because first of all, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of capital flowing into upgrading buildings, building them from scratch with housing developers. You also then see a, a large innovation community, Berlin being a really good example, the huge amounts of, of prop tech investments and capabilities coming out of Berlin. So it's an interesting challenge because there is so much attention and so many different stakeholders sitting around the table. So it's one that I'm quite hopeful about, but the one building block though, that we are maybe missing or the one that we are, that will be quite a challenge for us is around skills, because we do see quite a challenge around new engineering skills coming into the marketplace. And I know that skills and talent is, is one that you're quite passionate about. Where do you think that there's a challenge there? And what, what do you think that looks like? There's absolutely a challenge there. And of course, it's been in the press quite a lot recently around the shortage of capability for installing heat pumps, for example. And even if you turn out enough heat pumps, and even if you persuade enough households that they should put in a heat pump, there just isn't uh, the capability in the market in terms of the, the skills and the competence to be able to deliver at scale. Um, and that's a microcosm of a bigger challenge. Again, we're talking specifically, I think, in the UK around the status of the engineering profession, the attractiveness of the engineering profession as a result, to be able to draw individuals from primary and secondary school actually into the profession rather than lose them at some point, either in secondary school or as they come out of uh, tertiary education. I, I felt for a long time that we've done ourselves a disservice in this country by not, I guess, almost marketing the incredible importance and power of what engineers do in our society. I think 200 years ago in the Victorian age, they got it, but we've lost that sense today. Other countries, engineering is a very highly regarded status industry, but, but here it just isn't. And sadly, I think most of the public at large associate engineers with people that close the railways at the most inconvenient time or, or dig up the roads or and, and, and that seems to be the that seems to be the persona of the industry so I would really like to see uh, all of the players that exist within the, the ecosystem of engineering actually start to put serious effort into showing the image of engineering as on the front line of decarbonisation, on the front line of creating really high quality living environments in communities and using that as a way of encouraging more individuals into this profession. Absolutely. And it's in terms of examples that that the industry can use is, is case studies or of all of the amazing things that engineers have built in the world. The list is endless. Everywhere you look, there is something that has been built or designed by an engineer, which is really quite incredible. And so the, there's no shortage of case studies to, to try and attract people into the industry. But then I, I guess thinking about this mammoth challenge ahead around climate change, it's going to take a team effort of skills across the spectrum, engineers being a key role within that. You already mentioned that we have a lot of the solutions that we need to solve climate change. They already exist. And I personally see the challenge less around an, an innovation and R&D piece and more around an actual enabling and connecting the dots and really more of an engineering challenge. So I guess thinking ahead 
to this mammoth challenge that we have and thinking about some of the challenges that we have within the skill shortage. It's one that we're going to need to overcome. For sure. And I really like the the emphasis you put on the collaboration that's needed across a range of stakeholder groups and the voice of engineering within that. So alongside my formal KPMG role, I'm also heavily involved with the Institution of Civil Engineers. And the Institution of Civil Engineers was one of the organisations that stands behind something called the International Coalition for Sustainable Infrastructure that I happen to chair. And the raison d'etre of that organisation is to bring the voice of engineers into the broader stakeholder conversations that need to be convened in order to solve these big challenges that the world is facing. And I think part of the problem historically has been that the policy debate takes place over here and doesn't connect into the engineering expertise and insight that it needs to in order for the policy solutions to be properly informed by the understanding from the engineering community of of what is feasible and, and so on. And then there's a broader point about collaboration, which is, as you say, these are these are wicked problems <laughs> that the world is facing. They're hugely multidimensional. And it would be ridiculous to assume that any one organization or small group of individuals could fix them. You have to pull that expertise and that knowledge and find ways of having a much more mature conversation than I think comes easily to us. And I'm a great I'm a great believer in the power of having really diverse groups of individuals together and perhaps spending a bit more time listening and a bit less time trying to insist on what you think the answer is before you go into the room, because that is the way I think that we will have breakthroughs around what we need to do in order to respond as quickly as possible. So we reach five years, nine months and 19 days and recognise that we're actually in a good place rather than that the world is spiralling to disaster. Richard, one last question to finish. I want to pick up on your points around breakthroughs, and I'm going to put you on the spot, I'm afraid. Looking ahead, what engineering-related or or built environment-related breakthroughs are you most excited about? And you can't say climate change as a whole. But you're also not tempting me to pick a technology or inviting me to take something much, much broader than that. What's the breakthrough we need? I think the breakthrough we need is around a mindset shift, a a mindset shift that recognises that we can solve this, that we will solve it by working together. And I mean that both at the level of organisations, but also at the level of countries. A mindset shift that genuinely recognises that the world is in a very perilous position and that we need to act really fast in order to fix it. And I think we've seen some of that mindset shift over the last couple of years. I'm naturally an optimist and I'm really excited about the fact that I have conversations with the chief execs of major global corporations or ministers or officials in really senior positions in different governments or in cities and they don't just get it but it's becoming personal they understand maybe they understand for themselves maybe they understand because they've got children maybe they understand because they just can see the big picture and they're motivated therefore to act and that 
mindset shift leading to action, that is where I'm most optimistic. We're going to see the breakthrough. Brilliant. Richard, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.